This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Tonight we are excited to study God's Word again. Back to our study of theology proper. You ever noticed how important people seem to have really long names? (laughs) You know? All these prefixes and suffixes piled on both ends. I was reading a book in my study today and happened to go to the title page just to check there uh, who wrote this book. And it said on the title page, The Most Reverend Thomas Cramner, Lord Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) That took three lines on the title page to put that on there. Then there's your friend Tom. (laughs) You know, they seem to be in different leagues, right? Uh, it's true that uh, our names and all the titles we put on our names are supposed to speak to something about who the person is, the appellations, the titles, the designations. And if that was true and is true in our day, it was even more so in biblical times. Uh, Of course, no one more important in the Bible than God. And as we might expect, he reveals himself in his word with dozens and dozens and Dozens of names, names, titles, designations, and we can learn so much from them. As George MacDonald, a well-known Scottish preacher of 100 years ago, if you haven't read his biography, it's worth the read. He says, the names of the Lord God should be like precious jewels in the cabinet of our heart. He says they should be taken out with great care. Herbert Lockyer, in his introduction to all the divine names, his volume and his multi-volume set, adds to McDonald's statement, and he says, and they should be taken out often, not merely as precious jewels to admire, but the names of God should be treasures to be used for our constant spiritual nourishment. And the more you know about the divine names of God in the scripture, I think the more we'll find not only will we understand God and the nuances of his character much better, but we'll learn a new level of devotion and intimacy and fellowship with the God of the Bible. So tonight, hopefully you found your worksheet, and we're going to start with the simple question, what's in a name? And I'd like you to jot this down if you would, and remember that biblical names are meaningful. When names were being picked out, they didn't have those little books at the checkout stand at the supermarket, you know, baby names, you know, boy names, girl names. They didn't pick names that sounded cute and They didn't even pick names that were, you know, after their favorite person, uh, Uncle Jim or Joe or what have you. The names were always instructive, and you know that. Think through the names in in, in the biblical record that you know. Moses, what does Moses mean? Sunday school graduates. Moses, plucked out, drawn out, because his life was spared. He should have died, but he was was snatched, not from the fire, but from from the river, plucked out. Abram. His name was a, was a contradiction. Abram meant what? Sunday school grads. Great father, right? <laughs> problem with a- Abram, the great father, is he had no kids. That was a problem. God shows up and adds to the profundity of his name and the contradiction of his name and says, no longer will you be called Abram. You'll be called Abraham. What does Abraham mean? 
father of many, a multitude. You got Esau. What does Esau mean? He comes out. Dad goes, I know what to call this kid. Harry, right? That was his name. His nickname was Edom, Red. That's what Edom means, Red. His brother's name was Jacob. Why was he called Jacob? Because he was, he was grabbing the heel on the way out, those twins, the day the twins were born. Jacob had a second name, and God often did that, whether it's Peter or Jacob. God comes on the scene and says, now you're going to have this name. And Jacob's second name was Israel. And Israel means what? One who struggles, strives, wrestles, fights. That's an interesting name for the nation. And they've had to fight and they've had to struggle. And actually in context, you'll see, and God says, I'll call you that because you struggled and you won. (laughs) You're a winner. You got to work to win, but you're a winner. Names of biblical characters are always significant, more than just sounding nice. And if biblical names are meaningful, divine names are didactic. They become instructive. They teach us. They do something for our minds to help fill in the gaps and we learn all these attributes of God and who God is, but then we get his many and varied names and we say, now I get it. (laughs) Here's this aspect of God I didn't see before. And in scripture, we find them in several categories. The first category is uh, names related to position. You've got names like God and Lord and the I am. And these have to do with with who he is, the monarch, the, 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 the king, the boss. Then you have names related to relationship. And there are many names, sundry names in the scripture that relate to his position. His position, or I'm sorry, his relationship rather, uh, with, with the angels, uh, Lord of hosts, to us, Father. The Aramaic word creeps into the New Testament, Abba. We see a lot of names related to who he is. And so it is with Christ. We see a lot of names related directly to attributes in scripture. The Lord God Almighty. The God who provides, the God who sees, all these things directly related to what kind of character, what kind of God that he is. And while we understand that every word of scripture is inspired in the original manuscripts, we understand that in the biblical narrative, many of the names of God come from a response of people. They're expressing their experience with God and they speak out and they say, this is what I'll call God, my God. And we have words like God is my rock and my fortress. God is my shepherd. Which, by the way, all of those that seem to be one step removed from a proper name that God gives himself, though there are some tonight we'll cover where someone assigns God that name, uh, we're going to take next week and deal with what I call the illustrative analogies of God. And we're going to deal with less of them and won't feel like we're flying through so many. And we'll be able to camp, I trust, devotionally and see as scripture, for instance, says, the Lord is my shepherd. What are the nuances and, and, and the implications of that in the Bible? So that's next week. Don't miss next week. But for tonight, it's chart night. <laughs> it's chart night. And, you know, I know it looks like a lot because it is a lot. But it was almost a whole lot more. I tried to cover all three persons of the Godhead. And at about two in the afternoon, I said, there is no way we're going to be able to squeeze all this in. Because this is theology proper, you understand. There's Christology and pneumatology yet to come. So we'll deal with all the names of Christ, which it's a dizzying number in both Old and New Testament. And the names of the Spirit, 
and the emblems of the Holy Spirit another night. I tried to squeeze all of that in, but I could not do it. So tonight, let's deal with just either statements of the triune God or God the Father, and we'll deal with these one at a time. First of all, in the Old Testament. I trust that tonight, and while it may not be as devotional as we would like, I hope it will assemble and refresh some things about what you've heard God referred to in writings and magazines and Christian books and biographies and preaching, and you'll be able to say, okay, now I have it. And maybe this set of notes will become a great reference for you in the future if we can sort out where these names all come from. First, let's start with Old Testament names. And what I've done is created a chart, and while I'm going to do it uh, vertically... Yours goes across horizontally, and you just fill those in as I fill these in. And the first name, and and I've got numbers on all of these, don't I? The first name here that is the most ubiquitous and the most frequently used in Scripture is the name Yahweh. And you hear me use the word Yahweh all the time, much to the chagrin of a lot of folks. By the way, was it the Catholic Church that said recently in their news release they were no longer going to use the name Yahweh anymore? Uh, in all of their uh, liturgy because it offended the, uh, uh, the Orthodox Jews. Don't, don't get me started on that. <laughs> Yahweh. And I have there in uh, parentheses here, and this will be reviewed for some of you, the four consonants in Yahweh's name. Uh, and and uh, we need to spend a little time giving some background to this. And, and this may not look real familiar to you, even you Hebrew students, Uh, This is um, a Phoenician, uh, ancient Semitic language uh, expressed in uh, various forms of of cuneiform uh, writing and and depictions. And the reason this is important is because this ancient Phoenician uh, designation of God, which preceded uh, the the, the 1445 exodus of Israel uh, in, in you know, back to the 13th century BC, uh, at least that's our best guess at what we see in terms of ancient Phoenician and ancient Semitic languages of the Near East, is a name that survived. Uh, it survived in this form right here, uh, which is what we call uh, Proto Hebrew. Proto Hebrew. And what's fascinating about this, if you ever get a chance, uh, even if you just go by my office, we have a chart out on the wall of all the different developments of the Hebrew language, and one of the lines says Proto-Hebrew. That Proto-Hebrew language and the the script of Hebrew uh, is one that survives into the period of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is around the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century B.C. before Christ, And that one word, this word for Yahweh, is a different script. If you ever get a chance, even to go online to uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see a kind of Hebrew that is of the uh, Dead Sea Scroll period, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century B.C., and then you'll see God's name, and many of those manuscripts look just like this, uh, Proto-Hebrew, not like the bottom one, Not, not this right here, which is the classical Hebrew uh, designation of, of God's name. It's what we call the tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. Uh, uh, tetra, right, is what? Four, right? Uh, tetragram, right? Tetragram. Four, the four consonants, the four letters that represent God's name. I just put this up because if you go to some websites, and there's so many websites, and some are bizarre and freaky and esoteric, but sometimes you'll see, and I came across some this week, with just the proto-Hebrew designation of, of the tetragrammaton, of the name of God. 
the name Yahweh, but it's in old script. And it is fascinating. I should put it on the screen, but you'll, but it'll all look Greek to you. uh, I suppose if you don't know Hebrew, but you'll read the Hebrew of the first century BC. And then all of a sudden slapped in the middle is this Phoenician designation of God's name. It's a, it's a throwback. It's like our Bibles when you read in the Psalms, not, not the NIV, but like the NAS. And all of a sudden you're reading along and no longer do you see you, right? You see thee and thou. Same thing. Even in the second century and first century BC, when they were writing in their text, they came to God's name and they went back to an old styled script. Uh, some trace it back to the 10th century, 11th century BC designation of God. But those four consonants here are, are what you're normally going to see if you crack open a, uh, a Hebrew Old Testament or even read today in uh, Israel uh, the name of God, which there's a lot of reverence for and a lot of avoidance, and we'll look more at that in a minute. Yahweh, how's it translated in your Bibles? Most English Bibles translate it L-O-R-D. Note, though, carefully the small caps. And this is instructive for some of you, and for others, it's way repetitive because you've heard me explain my pulpit use of the word Yahweh. Yahweh, God's name, every time you see capital L, small cap O, small cap R, small cap D, what the translators are are signaling is this is the word Yahweh. This is the divine name. This is God's name. It's really not the word Lord, but we're masking it under the word Lord And we're giving you capital letters so that you know that what's under this English translation is the Hebrew word Yahweh. How many times does the word Yahweh appear in the Hebrew Old Testament? 6,828 times. That's a lot. It It is all over the place. By far the most frequent use and designation of God's name throughout the Bible. Example, for instance, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. Now, I know you're looking at this chart. There are so many passages. What I try to do is keep them all really close. So a lot in Genesis and Exodus. We could go all over the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and keep them all close. Some I couldn't, but, but most I can. So if you leave Exodus 3 open, our next one won't be too far away. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 15. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the, what's the word here? Yahweh, right? We don't need the anymore. We don't need the definite article. That's Yahweh's name. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, uh, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Now, again, some people say, wow, that's a bummer because it doesn't even come through in our translations. Um, That's true. That's why I say it from the pulpit. The precedent for not saying it is not just rabbinic or Masoretic uh, uh, practice in, in Jewish scholarship. It's New Testament Greek because they don't translate it for us there or transliterate it for us there. They use a different word for it. So I have no objection. Um, no, no. Well, let's say I have no strong objection. How's that? That sound, <laughs> sound like a lawyer there. No, I have no strong objection to, um, uh, to English translations, not using it because the new Testament Greek doesn't use it. But God did say here, this is my name. It is my proper name. And I want this name to be 
the name by which I'm remembered from generation to generation. Now, a lot of uh, Messianic Jews don't like the use of this. Have I said that already? And they, 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 they grate at this. Uh, but again, it's my deference to passages like this that get me using the word Yahweh from the pulpit on a regular basis. Okay? Now, what does it mean? In context here, he's revealed himself as the I am. That is our best linguistic guess as what this means. And I, I hate to even say guess because it's a pretty sure bet that the, the word Yahweh so closely related to the word I am that that's what we understand the word to, to mean. It is based on the root of the verb to be. Therefore, what does it communicate? I left you all that room in the, the margin there for significance, is that he's saying, I'm the self-existent one. It is the words that Jesus uses in the New Testament, in the book of John, to say before Abraham was born, ego ami, I am, right? The point is, he's referring to this passage in Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses and says, hey, uh, I, I am the I am. I am the existing one, the always existing one, the self-existing one. This word, not uttered, by rabbinic Jews for most of the uh, post-Christian era. More on that later as to why. That was strategic. Number two. The next name that we need to understand about God is the word Adonai. Adonai. We've heard all these. Let's try and make some sense of these. How's this translated in your Bible? How do you like this for confusion? Lord. Uh, different word. Also translated Lord, the distinction, though, is small caps. Yahweh translated Lord, Adonai translated Lord. You can always tell the difference by whether or not you have a small case O, small case R, small case D. How many times does the word Adonai show up in the Old Testament? 442 occurrences of the word Adonai. Example, you're in Exodus 3. Let's look at Exodus 5, verse 22. And I picked this one because they're back to back. No, not a compound. We'll look at compounds here in a minute. Exodus 5.22. Moses returned to, what's that word? Yahweh. And said, oh, it's not Yahweh. Now we know, our best guess is, even though we don't have our Hebrew text here, what? Adonai. Moses returned to Yahweh and said, oh, Adonai, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Uh, is this why you sent me? And things weren't going so well for him at this particular time. Now, what we can note about this, taking notes in the margin there, significance, is that this is the generic word for God. This is the generic word that most Jews through the post-Christian era were comfortable using and saying. It means in its base and its root, one who is in charge, the leader, the boss, the ultimate head honcho, the sovereign one. That's what the word Adonai means. It is, as I've often said and analogized, it is like a combination when we see this and a distinction between my position and my proper name. This is his position. Coach Jim, Pastor Mike. See, those are a combination of a proper name and a title, right? The, the generic role that he plays. Adonai is the role that Yahweh serves in. Yahweh is who he is and his role is he's the sovereign one. He's the one in charge. He is the leader. He's the boss. Okay. Number three. Jehovah. In quotations. Did you notice the others weren't in quotations? 
Translation, Jehovah, which is not a translation. It's transliteration. Only shows up four times. If you have a Strong's Concordance, do you have a Strong's Concordance? That takes the King James English translations and lists them all. Look up Jehovah, you'll find four references. How many times does Jehovah occur in the Hebrew Old Testament? Zero. I'm confused. Examples. Well, there are none. Jehovah. If you've heard me rant on this, I finally put together a PowerPoint that I think will explain it. Because <laughs> a lot of times I blow through this whole explanation and people go, well, I don't even know what he's talking about. So here you go. You ready? Let's make sense of this. When you add Yahweh with Adonai, you incorrectly and erroneously arrive at Jehovah. Okay? That's the summary statement. Let's make sense of it if you want to. And you may want to go take a nap at this point, but it is interesting, I believe. Here's the divine name, okay? Yahweh. Yoth, and it always reads the way that came in. Did you see that? Not from left to right, but to right from right to left. Yoth, hey, vav, hey. Yoth, hey, vav, hey. That's the word Yahweh, tetragrammaton. It is written, as most Hebrew is, without vowels. But when the Masoretes who put the vowel pointings, because all Hebrew characters are, are consonants, right? They're all consonants. There are no vowels. Vowels are placed into Hebrew with points and dashes all around to help grade school children vocalize Hebrew words. It's like writing a sentence without vowels. You can, you can do it. And if you got used to doing it, you wouldn't need the vowels. You'd be able to figure out how it works. Well, if you go to Israel today and you go to a bookstore, if you look in the children's section, if it's for kids around four years old, you know, five years old who are just learning to read, six-year-old readers, maybe seven-year-old readers, you'll see vowel pointings. But then go over and pick any other book off the shelf. There are no vowel pointings. It's just clean consonants, just like this. Yoth, hey, vav, hey. That's how most things read. The Masoretes in the 10th century, who were Jewish folks living in Galilee, folks, uh, they were the professors of Israel, and they were putting all the vowel pointings on the scriptures to help people vocalize the Hebrew words. Okay? Whenever they got to this, initially, they didn't put any vowel pointings. No vowel pointings, no original vowel pointings survived. Okay? We had another word for, for God, Lord, I'm sorry, which is the word Adonai. And you'll notice here there are vowel pointings on this. This is the word Adonai written with vowel points. Vowel pointing all around, which now helps us vocalize it. And the Hebrew text, which is written for adults who go to seminary, uh, is all vowel pointed. And little kids laugh at it in Israel because only little kids' books have vowel pointings. But we need them because it's not our first language. And we learn how to read the Hebrew text with vowel pointings. Those came from the Masoretes, 9th, 10th, 11th century A.D. Okay? The practice became that they took these vowel points. I'm sorry. Whenever a, a Hebrew scribe was reading the text, and in the text he hit one of the 6,800 times where God's name was, was in the text, he didn't read the word Yahweh. He read the word Adonai, which got quite confusing, right? Or is for us, at least. We're new initiates to this. But whenever the text said... Yahweh, they didn't read Yahweh, they read Adonai. 
Even if you go to some Jewish sites today who have some readings of the scripture, you'll find, you'll see it there, yod Hey vav Hey, and you expect to hear Yahweh. You don't hear Yahweh. You hear the reader say Adonai. Okay? Now, to prompt this, the Masoretes began to put the vowel pointings from Adonai onto the consonants of Yahweh, which made no sense, right? It was a code for them to know, don't read Yahweh, it's a sacred name, we don't utter it because we don't want to break you know, the, the commandment of, of taking the Lord's name in vain or blaspheming the Lord, as Leviticus said, or Exodus 20. So we just try to avoid it, we don't say his name. But to know that you don't say his name, we're going to put the vowel pointings from Adonai onto Yahweh, which is a conflation, right? They just mix these two things. Okay. Here, Yov, Hey, Vav, Hey. Okay. There's, there's, there's the word. Okay. Now, here are the vowel pointings. For you Hebrew students, you'll remember this is a reduced, reduced pathic. It's an A, but it sounds like an E. Okay. There's a holum. I love the holum. It's easy to remember. It's like a hole on top of the letter, right? That's an I. I'm sorry, an O. See there? I didn't do well in Hebrew. O. Then there's a comets. A comets here underneath, which looks like a little T, which is an A sound. And you read it. Character, vowel pointing, character, vowel pointing, character, vowel pointing, character. Adonai. Okay? So we have an A that sounds like an E. We have an O and we have an A sound. Now, we threw those on top of Yahweh, right? Which was just a code, just a code for scribes to know not to say it, but to say Adonai instead. But we need to remember that it said Yahweh here, so we're going to leave the consonants, but we'll throw the vowel pointings up there, which then jammed these vowels in the middle of the word Yahweh. Did you see what that just did? That was cool too. Cool PowerPoint, Pastor Mike. Okay, so... Now, I know what you have, if I'm going to be absolutely woodenly literally, literal, I've got a Y-E sound, H-O-W-A-H. That's not Jehovah. Well, it is, because Y sounds came through in Middle English to English as J's, and still retained in most of the words like Joshua and Joab and, 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 and uh, Jacob, right? But they're Y sounds in Hebrew, Okay. The, the um, uh, E sound, H, right? That one, that one works. O, the holum. Uh, even if it, when I read it, Vav, Hebrew, modern Hebrew grammar spells that, that letter, W-A-W. It, is, it sounds like a V. And when you pronounce it, it sounds like a V. So that came across into the modern word Jehovah with a V, right? The pathic, there's our A, and the hey is an H. That spells Jehovah, which is not a word. Did you follow that? It's not a word. It's, it's a conflation. It's a scrunched together word, which wasn't supposed to be said like that. Because Yahweh has its own way to say it, which Jews don't say. And Adonai has a way to say it. Adonai vowel pointings on Yahweh consonants. That was just to remind us, hey, scribes, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai. Conflation came through into English in 1611, thank you very much, in four passages in the King James Bible as Jehovah. And you'll find it in your Bibles. It's not a real Hebrew word. Okay? 
Is that helpful at all? Because I spent an hour putting those five slides together, darn it. Because every time I try to explain that, people look at me like they don't understand. You, you didn't understand it, right? Okay, see? You're ahead of about 95% of the Christians in America today. And when the JW comes knocking on the door, right? I know they'll dance around that, but the word Jehovah, they're Jehovah Witnesses. Oops, right? Jehovah's not even a word. Okay, so hopefully that helped explain that. Looks like a mess on the screen, but it makes sense. All right, number four. Now, it gets interesting. Here's a compound word. Yahweh, Adonai. Sometimes in scripture, those two words are jammed together. Now we have a real problem. Translators, what do we do with this? I don't know. Because I'm in the pattern of translating them Lord, if it's Yahweh, and Lord, if it's Adonai. I just put caps there. So what am I supposed to do? Lord, Lord? That didn't sound right. Sounds bad. That sounds Matthew 7, right? So translators translate it Sovereign Lord. Why? Just because. (laughs) Because they don't want to say Lord, Lord. And they take the word Adonai, which does mean boss, king, sovereign one, and Lord, God's proper name. And when it's coach Jim or Pastor Mike, they just say, let's not say Pastor Mike or Coach Jim. We'll say, you know, co- uh, we'll say uh, the, the, the sovereign coach or we'll say the, the awesome pastor, right? But we, but we <laughs> I just threw that one in for you. But we <laughs> won't say the proper name. So when you see the word sovereign Lord in your Bible, most of the time, what you're looking at under the text is Yahweh Adonai. Occurrences. You got 144 examples of this in the Old Testament. This is a lot. This is frequent. Only 39 books of the Old Testament. You have this compound word, which you would expect, right? It's a book about, you know, Coach Jim. Well, you're going to find those together quite often. You'll find Jim's name everywhere 6,000 times. You'll find Coach there 442 times. And then you'll find Coach Jim there 144 times. Example. Keeping you in Exodus, so you don't have to turn far. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. We don't really need to... It's just so you can note it. And you probably have a footnote on this. And I don't have my reference Bible out, but I assume your reference Bible has a footnote here. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the Coach Jim, right? Yahweh Adonai. But they don't want to say, Lord, Lord, so they say, Sovereign Lord. That's one of the 144 times that combination appears in the Bible. All right, let's go to number five. El. El Toro. El Torito. No, this is not a Spanish article. This is the name God. We haven't hit that name yet, right? Lord, Lord. Sovereign Lord, God, El. This is an ancient word also, by the way. Your Garitic languages, which go back to cuneiform times in 10th century BC times, have this word El very simply put as a reference to deity, to God. And so it appears in the Bible that way. How many times? 238 times which much like the word 
coach or lord, I should say, sovereign one. Uh, it means the, the powerful one, the mighty one, the, the, the one with all power, the one who can interface with the created world. This word L in Old Testament and New Testament, I'm sorry, like the word theos in the New Testament, is used for false gods as well as the true God. Because it is the most generic word for God. The most generic word of all for God. And when you see the word God with a small g, you can pretty well bet we're dealing with the Hebrew word El. Which, by the way, for instance, in Genesis 31, we'll see is used often as a compound. And not for God's name, but for something else. When God wants to put his his signature on something, or when the Old Testament character wants to describe something as attached to God or in reference or connection to God. They use L as a, as a compound. Genesis 31, 13. It says, I am the L of Bethel. That's how that reads. Translates God. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land and go back at once to your native land. I am the El of Bethel. And I use that reference out of the 238 options that I had because that shows a nice example of a compound. I am the El of Bethel. Bethel in Hebrew, Beth, means house. The city of Bethel is called the house of God. Bethlehem, Lachem means bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethel means the house of El, of God. Uh, Mikael, my name, Michael, Mikael, who is like God, who is like El, God, El. A lot of names end in E-L, right? Those all are compounds of God. I don't count those in the 238. 238 times in the Old Testament, I'm just talking about references to the word El, God. Number six, Elohim. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one. Elohim. You've heard that one, right? Elohim. Sounds like El. It's not El, but it's related to El. Because every time you see in a transliterated Hebrew word, I am on the end of it. Hebrew students, you know this. What is it? It's plural. I am at the end is plural. This is El in the plural. It's like putting an S on the end. Now I'm getting really confused. You'll be even more confused. God, it's translated the same exact way. And this time, the English translators don't give us any distinction. They don't give us an S on the end, and they don't capitalize anything. So when you read the word God, you don't know if it's El or Elohim. You don't know. You've got to have a Hebrew Old Testament. You've got to ask your pastor. You've got to have a Hebrew interlinear. You've got to have Logos software or Libronic software. You've got, to, you've got to figure it out some way. Elohim. Look at this now. 2,606 times. This shows up as a reference to God. How many times for L? Well, 238. That's a lot. This is a whole lot more. 2,606. It is the second most frequent word for God in the Bibles. In the Bible, it is the first reference to God. It is the, it is the fourth word of the Bible. Right? In, in, in the Hebrew text. In the beginning, God. Is that in English? In the beginning? Yeah, God. Same. Slow counter. In English, too. It's the fourth word of the Bible. Elohim. Now, that trips people out. And Trinitarians instantly say, great, we've got a plural. 
That means three and one. Nah. Uh, that's not how they understood the word. It's an interesting use in languages is, is weird, obviously, but I am, when you put an I am on the end of a word, oftentimes what that did is it intensified the word. Okay? It took the word and it made it more intense. They still call it plurals in grammar books, but they call it, for instance, as you look at the word Elohim in scripture, they often call it a plural of majesty. And that is, I'm so important, I can't be contained with just Mike. I'm Mike's, right? That's how it works. It's an intensifier. It's just too much of me for Mike. I'm just Mike's. I know that doesn't make sense for us, but that's the way it made sense to them. That's how the ancient Near Eastern languages worked. I am, plural, intensifier. Therefore, the Hebrew writers, obviously, when they referred to the real God, loved to intensify his name with a plural. And we have, right out of the gate, first chapter of the Bible, repeated use, Elohim, 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 Elohim. Does it leave the door open for this whole thing called the Trinity? Yeah. And a lot of people point to the Trinity when they see the proper, uh, or the uh, personal pronouns used in plural. Let us make man in our own image. Still, look at a good commentary or Hebrew grammar. Most will say, well, it's the same concept in the ancient Near Eastern language. It is an intensifier. It is a plural of majesty. But it also does, think about what I just said. There's too much of God to be contained in a singular. That is the Trinity, right? There is too much God. There's, he's too complex to be referred to as a finite noun. There's got to be a, got to be more to God than that, a plural. Not a dual. You Hebrew students know that, right? It's not a dual. It's a plural. In some languages, I don't know. I didn't. I studied old languages, but some other languages have duals, right? Do they? Where when you're referring to two, it's got a different ending. When you're referring to three or more, it's got a different ending. Still, no. Is that just Hebrew? You. <laughs> Sorry. There, is there another language that does that? Which ones? Russian. There you go. There's a duel in Russian. Yeah. In what? German. Yavul. Yavul. The German does a duel too? Tons of them. How about French? Does that do? Y'all took French, right? Does that have a duel? No? All right. I've lost. I've lost it now. Elohim. Now, again, you want to look at an example of this. Genesis 31 11, you're in Genesis 31 already. The L of Bethel, look up two verses. And the angel of Elohim said to me in a dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. Again, you would never know, look at verse 11 and verse 13. You'd never know the difference in English. But one is L and one is Elohim. Generally speaking, 2,606 times, it is Elohim and not L. All right. Number six. Is that what I said? Something wrong? Are my numbers wrong? Yeah, this should be number seven. Is this going to mess the rest of our night up? Perhaps. We'll find out. Yahweh Elohim. This should be number seven. Read number seven for number six. Yahweh Elohim. This is another compound. We have Yahweh Adonai. We also have Yahweh Elohim. And it is translated, not sovereign Lord, but Lord God. That one's easier because they're not used to translating 
Elohim as Lord, but they are used to translating Adonai as Lord. Occurrences of this combination, 126. Example, we're in Exodus, Exodus 9. Exodus 9, verse 30. You don't need to turn there. It's a very simple statement, but I'll read it. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear, here it is, Yahweh Elohim. You don't fear the Lord God. Lord God. Very familiar English combination. You're used to hearing it that way. When you see that, it's probably the combination Yahweh Elohim. Number seven. Number eight. Oh, darn. Oh, Yahweh Elohim. Look at that. I did it twice. So nice I did it twice. Number eight. We are back on track, man. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Thanks, Amy Grant. Made this one popular, right? El Shaddai. El Shaddai. You've heard of this one? Heard of that one. El Shaddai. It's translated in your Bibles, God Almighty. And again, I don't mean to mess up the song for you. But that's a stretch. It, 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 mm, how far do I go with this? El Shaddai. Shad, as in Shaddai. Shad means breast. How do you like that? <laughs> I'm not sure. Breast. Many Hebrew grammarians think the concept is not all powerful, right? Almighty, but all sufficient. Ancient translations sometimes translate that I mean this in other languages. The God uh, of the wilderness. Where in the wilderness, like, I don't know, it's hard to think of an example of this, uh, but you're somewhere and you can't get a Coke. <laughs> but your baby can stop at any time and get a drink from mom. Okay? That's the picture. Self-sufficient. Got it. Taken care of. The breast will feed the baby. Okay? Now, El Shaddai, that's not what you thought of when you heard the song. But the concept of being self-contained, self-sufficient, is what many people believe the ultimate reference to this is often we find this, well, often I should say, when you see the references to be fruitful and multiply, guess which word is pitted with it? I'll give you the example here. It's 48 times in the Bible, Genesis 35, 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and increase in number. Do you see now that con- contact, that connection, right? Right, the self-sufficient one. He will supply for you, he supplies for himself, be fruitful and multiply. I don't want to make too much of that, but when you do see these references, often you see the Hebrew words El Shaddai. Some ancient references prefer God of the mountain, but the concept is the same. God of the wilderness, God, the self-contained, self-sustaining one, and the one who will sustain you. And I know that for those who've studied any pagan Religions, they struggle with that because so many gods, even in the New Testament, the gods of fertility, had all those breasts hanging off of them. Remember those? If you're new to this, you're going, really? Yes, you've seen them, right? Um, Artemis, Diana, they, the, the breast was the sign of, of, of fertility. And uh, in the concept, though I don't think the line is blurred like that, the concept of God supplying and being sufficient and supplying for you and supplying for himself perhaps is the best 
understanding of El Shaddai. Ruin that song for you, sorry. El Elyon. El Elyon. Here's another compound of El. El Elyon. El Elyon. This is translated in your Bibles, God Most High. This now does have that sense of, of almighty, of supreme position, none higher. And the interesting thing about this, though it only occurs 49 times in the Bible, when it does, in reference to non-Israelites, you often see this, especially in pivotal passages like that of Melchizedek. Remember, is Melchizedek not a head-scratcher, right? It's a head-scratcher for us because here is a guy who's hanging out, Abraham meets and gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Then he gets really trippy in this statement, the prophetic statement in Psalm 110, and then it gets really bizarre in the book of Hebrews. But the personage shows up. You think, who are you? A priest of El Elyon, right? That compound is used to show that even outside of Israel, there were some in the patriarchal period who were committed to and loyal to the ultimate God, the only God there is, the, the great God, the El Elyon. And so that's my example I give you is, is Genesis 14. Then the king, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought bread and wine out, and he was the priest of El Elyon, the God most high. It's not the covenant name. It's not the name revealed to Moses to be remembered, but it is the name of the ultimate God. The God, the ultimate God, the God most high. There is no higher authority. And Melchizedek was a priest of the highest authority. Number 10, El Olam, El Olam. Here's another compound. Now I'll throw these, and again, this is just a sampling. However many I have here. How many do we have? 17 in the Old Testament. But I throw these in because I find in the books that I read, these are the popular ones, right? Eternal God. Telephone. Eternal God. Number three. Number three. There are three occurrences in the Old Testament of El Olam, the eternal God. Example, Genesis 21:33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh, the El Olam. Here is one speaking directly to an attribute, the eternal one, the everlasting one, the one who is forever. And it is interesting under a tamarisk tree, and there's a lot of imagery there we don't have time to get into, but El Olam. Here's another one we read about in those books. A lot of people love this one. El Roi. Roi is the way to say this. El Roi. El Roi. El Roi, I think strikes a chord with us in all these devotional books in the name of God uh, because of the context. This name shows up in scripture only one time and it shows up at a time when you start to feel for um, Abraham's uh, uh, Hagar, the, the, the uh, what's the word? What is she? She's the, uh, what's the word we use? Maid servant. There you go. Wife number two, kind of, right? <laughs> uh, Hagar, who has Ishmael, and Sarah, as you might expect, gets a little torqued that we got another woman in the family bearing children to the, to the inf- you know, infertile. You know, in, it's, it wasn't a good scene. So she, you know the story. Abraham has to send her away. And so Hagar and Ishmael walk into the desert, and uh, then she says, 
She calls him El Roi, El Roi, the God who sees, because she is downcast. She is rejected, and she goes into the wilderness. And amazingly, God says, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And you remember how that went? I mean, yeah, I don't mean to say that badly, but it went well for the multiplication and success of them, but it became a great antagonist to the people of Israel. But the passage, it's one time, and it occurs, it occurs in Genesis sixteen thirteen, And because it's such an emotional account, as Hagar runs away from Sarah and Abraham as a reject, uh, you often see people celebrating this name of God. As it says in verse 13, she gave this name to Yahweh who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. And I translated her that sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God has been good to me. He's revealed himself to me. He's going to take care of me. That's a touching scene for Hagar and Ishmael. Number 12. Yahweh Yari. Yahweh Yari. And I know this is Jehovah Jireh. That's how they normally say it. But Yahweh Yari. Translation is Yahweh will provide. This is another dramatic uh, passage. And it only occurs once, but everybody talks about it when they talk about the names of God. Because Yahweh, Yahweh Yeri is uh, this depiction of Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac laying on the altar, and as he raises his, his knife to slay his son, God stops him. And there is a ram caught in the bush, and he says, Yahweh Yeri, God, the Lord, Yahweh, provides. Did you catch that? Genesis twenty two fourteen, Abraham called out, Yahweh will provide. Called that place, Yahweh will provide. And to this day on the mountain of Yahweh, it will be provided. And you know where that was, right? David later bought it. It was a threshing floor. And it became the spot where the sacrifices, where Solomon built the temple and the sacrifices were made. It's just powerful imagery. The God who provides. And for us this day, Christ died as the sacrificial lamb, the Isaac, the divine Isaac, and God has provided for our sin. Yahweh Rofi, Yahweh Rofi, the God who heals. This is another one that people can't pass up. It only happens once in the Bible, and it's found in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. And it was a promise that as those people went out into the wilderness, the children of Israel, if they would obey God, that's the context, and they would keep his commands and his decrees, that God would not bring any of the diseases upon the people that he brought upon the Egyptians after they left, after all of the plagues of Israel. And he said, because I am Yahweh Rafi. I am, I am the God, Rafi. I'm the God who heals. I'm the God who keeps you from those diseases. Of course, not all the time. Ask Job, right? Sometimes he brings the disease. Yahweh Nisi, Nasi, Yahweh Nasi. This is an interesting one. It only appears twice, actually once in clear context, another reference to the coming of Christ in the book of Isaiah. But it is translated Yahweh, our banner, banner. Now, I know that's often taken in various directions by devotional writers, but the picture is of specifically the one I've referenced here, Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. It is the picture of Abraham who raises his hand in the battle against the Amalekites. Remember that? And they're defeated. And because he's waving, he's got his hands up in the air. 
like you do with a banner to exalt. See, the picture in the passage is that when it was done and the Amalekites were defeated, it says Moses built an altar and he called it Yahweh Nisi, the God who is my banner, the one who is raised up, lifted high. And if you read commentaries, it'll either say the altar was up high, his hands were up high, God is up high, but it was a statement of victory over the enemies of Israel because God is exalted above it all. This one, important to get. Yahweh, Sabaoth, Sabaoth, Sabaoth. Often spelled without the T, but it's, it, it starts with a T, actually, a T sound. Sabaoth. Now, um, the translation is Yahweh of hosts. In a lot of translations, unfortunately, the NIV just calls it Almighty. That's the one thing I hate about the Hebrew translations is often in the NIV, they, a lot of them end up in the same bucket, Almighty, right? But this is specific, Yahweh of, of hosts, uh, Sabaoth. You, you remember Martin Luther's old song, right? Mighty fortress is our God. And then that thing, what is his name? The Lord Sabaoth is his name. Now, I know when I was a kid singing that song in church, I always thought, what's the Sabbath got to do with this song, right? It's not the word Sabbath. It's Sabaoth. Sabaoth is not rest because I'm thinking it doesn't really fit, right? I mean, this is kind of an onward Christian soldiers kind of song. And now you're making me, make me think of the Sabbath, sleeping, right? Afternoon naps, I don't get it. That's just, it's not what it means. Sabaoth means the Yahweh, the, the, the God of the armies, the hosts. This is put in a war context, though some trans letters will occasionally argue with that. Uh, look at every reference to it. 38 times in the Old Testament and most often related to warfare where we say when we go to battle, God is the captain of the armies, not just our army, right? But like that depiction with the prophet, open his eyes, look at the the angelic hosts. Now hosts can be used of armies. It can be used of angels and it can be used of the stars in the Bible. But the picture is generally one of the first two. That God is the God who goes to battle and he's got his, his, his commandos with him. He is Lord Sabaoth. Now, Martin Luther, mighty fortress, is our God. Now it makes sense, right? Lord Sabaoth, his name. That's his name. He's going to fight this battle for us. Did that help? Sabbath. Because didn't you think Sabbath? Sabbath? What is that? It's not Sabbath. It's Sabaoth. Sabaoth. Isaiah 2.12. That's one great reference. There are 38 choices for me to choose to pick one for you. But Isaiah 2, verse 12 is a good one. I like it because the context is, 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 um, is, is a good example of what most... Of, it's a fair depiction of most of the context of, of this reference. Isaiah 2.12. It says here, it's translated in the NIV, unfortunately, Yahweh Almighty. Right? But it's Yahweh Sabaoth, the, the, the captain of the host, Yahweh of the armies, has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. Right? For all that is exalted, they will be humbled. Do you see that? Even that, in the day of judgment, the picture is he's the Lord of, of the armies. Great. 16. Threw this one in because it's cool and you already know the answer. Yahweh Shalom. Shalom. That's on all those Israel Department of Tourism commercials now, right? From the, you'll love it from the first shalom. Shalom. You know what this is, right? 
It's a good one. Yahweh is peace. It's a greeting, but the greeting in Hebrew is peace. Shalom is peace. And this is a great text. Joshua chapter 6 is the only occurrence of this. I'm sorry, Judges chapter 6, not Joshua chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. When Gideon is told to go out and fight the Midianites. And in his interface with the angel of the Lord, he is given assurance that this is what God wants him to do. He is assured of it. Now, this has two overtones to it. He feels peace that it's the right thing and I'm the right guy. And there is the promise that he will succeed. And at the other end of the battle, this is gearing up for battle, that he will win and the Midianites will be defeated. Here's the verse, Judges 6.24. So Gideon built an altar to Yahweh and it is called Yahweh Shalom. It is called the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Orpha of the A guys. Abizarites. All right. Didn't practice that one. 17. My favorite of all, I save this to the last. And since I was throwing in ones that were only used once, this is my all-time favorite. It's eschatological. It looks forward to the future. Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh Shema. Translation, Yahweh is there. And when it means there, it means it's, he's there in an intensified way. One occurrence, you've got to look at this one. It's the very last phrase in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 48, 35. We just read Ezekiel. Did we finish Ezekiel yet? Did we? In our daily reading? Are you doing the daily reading? You should be doing the daily reading. Well, I know I finished Ezekiel. I may be ahead or I may be behind. Where are we on the daily reading? Which one? We're still in Ezekiel? Okay. Well, I got ahead. Because I, fri- I had Saturday afternoon off at my... Uh, speaking engagements this weekend. So I studied a little and I read Ezekiel a lot. But anyway, the last line, you know the book of Ezekiel is picturing the idealized temple and the city and it's coming, it's eschatological, it's future. And he says this in the last verse. And the distance around the city, it'll be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be called Yahweh Shema. It'll be called Yahweh's there. That's so great on so many levels. Christ sends his son and he calls him Emmanuel. And when we do Christology, we'll talk about all the names of Christ. Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. We know that one because the text translates it for us. And in the end of the book, I mean, that's phase one. At the end of the book, when he's finally enthroned and he's taken his great power and he begins to reign. And here comes now the city of God coming down like a bride prepared for her husband. That's us. We receive the city. It says, and the dwelling place of God is among men. That's a great final picture. And it's the last line in Ezekiel 48. And it's a great name of God. It's like on the arches of the city, Yahweh Shema. All right, real quickly. Let's go to New Testament. Same pattern, name, translation, occurrences, example. Then you've got room there on the side for comments if you want to make some for yourself. Number one, most common New Testament name, 
for God is theos. We get the word theology from this, theos. Translates simply in the scripture, God. God. And like the word Elohim, or not Elohim, I'm sorry, El, it is used for false gods as well. You can see it with a small G from time to time, theos. It occurs 1,318 times in the New Testament. Now remember, the New Testament is considerably smaller. That's a lot of occurrences of the word theos. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. You don't need to turn there. Just write it down. I'll read it for you. This is the promise to Mary. The virgin will be with child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means theos with us. God with us. 1,318 times. Second. And you got to be careful with this one. And I've teased these out for you here. It's the word kurios. Kurios. Kurios is the word generally translated Lord. Sometimes sir, but usually Lord because it refers to deity. Now, here's the tricky part. If you take your concordance out and you look up how many times Kyrios shows up in the New Testament, like a lot of times that I have to do, I can go through and pick out the times it doesn't refer to sir, people, captains, whatever, which is a very small number. But now I'm left with hundreds. But then I got to look carefully because most of them aren't referring to God the Father. They're referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. See? So, occurrences... In teasing these out, you'll get to, don't punish me if I'm one or two off here, about a hundred uses of the word kurios referring to God, the Father. Now that reference is often in context of quoting Old Testament passages. New Testament quotes Old Testament all the time. And when the words come up, many of them, Adonai, uh, El, Eli, um, um, Elohim, Yahweh, you'll see Kyrios used for that. Usually, uh, Yahweh, the 6,800 times that's used. Example, Mark 1, 3, quoting the Old Testament, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for Kyrios, make straight paths for him. Ah, that's a bad example, isn't it? That's Christ. But it's not in its original context, ultimately is about the theophany of God on the people. Well, I could have picked another one. Sorry. I tried to keep it in the Gospels, the first two Gospels. Take your pick. Lots of references to Yahweh. Pater, pater. Pater is also a very common designation of God in the New Testament. Pater translates father, and again, you've got to tease out all the references to earthly fathers in the scripture. And if you do that, you're left with 260 references to God, deity as father. Example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. He says, you do this, then you'll be sons of your pater in heaven, your father in heaven, who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Father. Very important New Testament picture, also important Old Testament picture, but New Testament picture because he's our provider. We are accountable to him. He's our disciplinarian. He's our protector. There's another word, Abba, in the New Testament. Abba, as you know, I trust you know this, is an Aramaic word. It's not a Greek word. 
It's the common household language of first century Jews in the synagogue, classical Hebrew, read from the Torah, in the home, Aramaic, in the marketplace, Koine Greek. Abba translates in our New Testaments, Abba, it's transliterated for us. Which, by the way, is the reason, contra the people that always want to tell us, that the New Testament was, you know, the, the, the language of his sermons were in Aramaic. I hear that all the time, even from good evangelical scholars. And the critics always want to say, well, you can't really trust those Greek words. And your pastor gets up about Greek words. You know, the Bible was probably originally written in Aramaic. No, it wasn't. Um, Greek was the language of the New Testament. It was the language in which it was written. And my contention, and I know I'm in the minority on this, is that the language of the preaching of Christ and the teaching of the apostles was largely in Koine Greek, in part because of the target of the Decapolis, the cities that spoke largely Greek in and around Galilee. And secondly, because when an Aramaic word was used, the New Testament writers go, hey, he didn't say pater, he said Abba. Example, there are three occurrences of this, Mark fourteen thirty-six. He's on the cross and he says, uh, or not on the cross, I'm sorry, he's in the garden at this point. And, and the apostles record, Peter, James, and John, who were there, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. When we see Aramaic phrases and terms in the New Testament, it only makes sense that they're there to me and my thinking and my research that this is an Aramaic utterance that carries... Note, because he's now breaking from the language of his public discourse into the language of Judaistic household conversation. Now, Abba is not a band. <laughs> uh, and it's not, um, it's really not as cutesy as a lot of preachers make it sound. Abba is the word for dad. And it has more of a uh, familial feel than pater, which is a little more formal in Koine Greek. But it's not, you know, daddy, you know, it's not daddy. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a term that carries res- uh, respect and reverence, but it is a word that is a bit more domesticated and familial. Another important phrase in the New Testament, kurios. Pantocrator, Pantocrator, curious Pantocrator. This is an important phrase because it translates something that is showing up in English in the Old Testament all the time. And that is Lord Almighty, Pantocrator, Pan. You know the word Pan comes into English in lots of words, all, right? Pantocrator, the, 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 the strong one, the, the strength. He has all strength. He's almighty. Curious Pantocrator. In, in Greek, that is the phrase. Lord Almighty. It shows, ten, it shows up ten times in the New Testament, often, often in reference to the return of Christ. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Ah, that's not an eschatological reference, I'm sorry. Most of them are in the book of Revelation, and they are referring to the coming of Christ. But 2 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, I will be a father to you, you will be my sons and daughters, says... Kyrios, Pantocrator, says the Lord Almighty, the strong one. Number six, Alpha Chi Omega. Alpha Chi Omega. 
You know that one. Translation, alpha and omega. Chi means and, of course. Connector, conjunction. Occurrences of this. Now, again, I teased out of this references to the Father. This occurs, what, five times in the New Testament? Three of them refer to Christ. Two of them refer to God the Father. So I listed as two, but you'll find it more times than that. Revelation 21.6, you'll find in Revelation 21.6, this one's not in red ink because grammatically it's referring to the Father and not the Son. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And you know what A Alpha means. What does Alpha mean? It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last. It is a familiar expression in the Old Testament, the first and the last. But of course, the Greek letters A and Z or Alpha and Omega, that's distinctively New Testament Greek. Two more. You hanging in there? This one's fun to say. Ho, Hosios. Ho, Hosios. Ho, Hosios. Translation, the Holy One. With an extra space there for some reason. The Holy One. This is used six times in the New Testament. It is a very familiar Old Testament phrase in Hebrew in the Old Testament, and often it finds its way across in the New Testament. Uh, For instance, in Revelation 16, verse 5, as a statement that doesn't need God's personal name. It's when the angels say, you are just in these judgments, you who are, who were the Holy One. Ho-hosios. Because you have so judged the world. Lastly, You've been around the church for a while, you know this word too. Dunamis. Dunamis. What's that mean? Dunamis means what? Power, right? Power, mighty one. I put mighty one because the NIV translates it that way. And I wish it didn't because literally what you'll find in the text when you see this, it's only one time, but it's a powerful statement, is just sitting by itself. The power. The example is Mark fourteen sixty two. Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of of the dunamis, of the power, coming in the clouds of heaven. The dunamis. All right. Now I know. (laughs) Did you like my graphic, by the way? Hello, my name is. Uh, I know there's a lot of devotional material we could grab from all this, but I'm going to have to cut you loose to do it all. What I prefer that you do is start to take this list and maybe do what a lot of people suggest, and maybe you've done this in other churches, is you just start utilizing these names in your prayer life and in your devotional life. Take one a day. You begin to explore the aspects and facets of it and start to utilize these names to become intimately acquainted with the nuances of God's character. And if for nothing else, it sorts out, I trust, all the... uh, often heard but rarely understood or distinguished words for the name of God. But uh, Is there a quiz? Is that what you said? We can put one together. Was that too much? That wasn't too much, was it? A little too much? No, I hope not. All right. I guess that means no. So let's pray together and we'll let you go. God, it is good. As uh, George MacDonald said 100 years ago, to uh, have in our arsenal, the cabinet of our heart, as he said, a greater understanding of the varied names 
that you have revealed in the scripture that represent who you are. So God, I pray that even just being here tonight, that we would have stuffed full in the hearts of this congregation resources that they can, as Lockyer said, be able to pull out and nourish their spiritual life with. God, I know it's disappointing that we didn't have time to unpack some of the implications for our personal lives, but I pray that would be the assignment. And even this worksheet wouldn't just be stuck in a binder somewhere and put on a shelf, but maybe it could be folded and put in our Bibles, and in the mornings we can open it up and and can remember that you are El Elyon, and you are the Lord Sabaoth that can fight the battles. You, You direct the armies of heaven, that you are Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace, who can give our hearts peace and set our hearts at rest in your presence. So God, help us to understand you better because we've taken time tonight for an hour to study your names. God, next week as we look at some of the analogies that have been used as people have responded to you with relief and joy and worship, I pray you deepen our understanding of you even more. Thanks for this study tonight, God. I pray it would enrich our spiritual lives and our walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen.